they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Bilodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! yes. It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. Excited for today, John O'Brower, an Australian Olympic alpine skier, competed in two Olympics, Turin in 2006, Vancouver in 2010. And this is a fascinating chat with Jono. You're going to learn some great insight into what it was like being a skier in Australia in the late 90s and into the 2000s, a period of winter sports in Australia, which maybe wasn't necessarily as big as it is now in Australia in terms of things like funding and attention and everything along those lines. And Jono goes into detail about working his way through the ranks, his Olympic aspirations, some very interesting stories about just how close he was to competing in Salt Lake in 2002, and going into some pretty graphic details details about some pretty horrific injuries that he's had over the years and just how that affected him, particularly going into his final Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. So this is a great chat with Jono. You're going to get a lot out of it. Jono is a fun guy, a very fun guy, and you're going to learn a lot about this and be thoroughly entertained. So sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with two-time Australian Olympic alpine skier Jono Brower. Very, very excited today to return to the great sport of alpine skiing and to talk to Australia's most successful male slalom and giant slalom skier. He is a multiple Australian champion, multiple uh, champion in other events around the world and a two-time Olympian competing in 2006 in Turin and 2010 in Vancouver. And I'm just going to say this right now, the voice of alpine skiing in Australia after a very yeah. successful stint during the recent Beijing Olympic Games. It's a pleasure to welcome off the podium the one, the only, Mr. John O'Brower. John O, first of all, pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me. Uh, that was quite the intro there, Ben. Thanks, mate. It's good to be give, here and, yeah. Got to give that ego a, you know, a bit of a push, basically. <laughs> you you know. Give it a stroke for me. I, I, I'm, I'm always up for stroking. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it started coming out of my head and I'm like, am I going? Am I going there? But I did. So, uh, um, yeah, wow, that's a very interesting start. But, Jono, it's um, <laughs> it's obviously something I'm not sure too often how you get to sit down and sort of chat about your your career, your, your skiing. Obviously, you're onto many different ventures now and have been retired for a little bit. But, I mean, is this something that you still get a chance to do and kind of relive this uh, amazing skiing career that you did have? Um, usually only in my own lunchbox, you know, <laughs> telling my kids how, how probably embellishing a few stories, but no, it's, uh, you know, it was a great experience to be able to get involved again this year, um, with the broadcast with channel seven. And that was, you know, that's obviously the most I've spoken about ski racing in a long time. And, um, that was awesome. It was really great. And it's just nice to be able to relive that, that, you know, once upon a time dream, and um, stokes up a lot of great memories. So, yeah. 
how did the the dream get started? Sort of uh, how did an Australian end up becoming a two-time Winter Olympian? Obviously not a journey that a lot of Australians ultimately end up making. No, you're right. It's not. Um, my mum in particular and my grandparents were, you know, incredibly enthusiastic skiers. Um, mum has been, you know, skiing her entire life and she was the one who was really critical to us, you know, getting involved and, and putting in the hard yards, you know, back in the early days when my sisters were sort of two when they started three and then I was four when I started skiing. Um, we used to do some family trips and then, when I was 10, my mum relocated to the mountains, to Fredbo, um, and pretty much that's where it kicked off for me. So I was, I'm the youngest of three and my sisters were sort of off doing their thing and, and finishing school. And, um, and I, I, you know, moved down here in year five, um, with my mum and, Basically, there was not really much option for kids to go skiing in ski school and holiday programs like there is now. And it was really there was race club only. And I think my mum had a had a cafe down here where she worked, you know, 12 hour days. And it was I think that was really just the way to get rid of get me out of her hair. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it turned out I love ski racing. So uh, it was you know, that was the beginning of what became you know, a lifelong um, passion and dedication. And was it a case of ski racing was all that was available? Were things like freestyle skiing and cross-country skiing, things like that also available? And did you give your hand at those as, as well? Yeah, definitely they were there. So moguls in particular, the slope style was not a thing back then. Um, you know, way back when I was a young kid, um, it sort of came up through my teenage years. But, you know, ski racing was was the, 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 the number one, I guess, alpine sport. Cross-country wasn't... You know, short bursts I'm good at, long long stints not so much. So cross country was crossed off the list pretty quickly and, and I'm a, you know, a bit of a speed junkie. So, um, you know, alpine or ski racing was just, it was just natural for me. I came from um, riding motorbikes, riding horses, racing go-karts, um, anything to do with with going faster was um, was my bag. So it was just a you know, natural thing for me to be, to get into ski racing and I just, I just loved it from the first day. I was going to ask if there were other sports that you were involved in. Named a couple there. I mean, you mentioned go karting. Was that something? Then we could have maybe been talking to you about something different. Was uh, you know, do you do much of that going competitive? Could have been a Formula One driver or something like that potentially. Oh, Danny Ricardo, eat your heart out. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my dad actually was a. He used to race what is was then in the seventies, sixties, and seventies the V eight supercars. So he. He used to race alongside Bob Jane and Norm Beachy, um, wow. fourth in Bathurst, actually. Wow. Um, yeah. So he, um, unfortunately, in I think it was '71 in Sandown, he he rode his car off. He split his um, Ford Mustang in half, and that was the end of his racing career. So he and I used to do a little bit of go karting for fun um, and well, semi competitively um, when I was a kid, but. It was. It became pretty apparent, you know. You can't. <clears throat> we're not. We're not from. Um, you know, a, a very affluent background. Didn't have a huge amount of, of cash behind me, and um, very quickly realised that you know, automotive sports are uh, extremely demanding on the wallet. And not to say that skiing isn't, but um, fortunately, living in a ski resort made it a lot more, a lot more attainable. So, and and skiing, I just love skiing. So. 
It was easy. Which, what was that scene like sort of growing up and kind of making your way through the ranks? Because I'm guessing we're sort of, what, talking late 80s, early 90s when, you know, we're living in a period yep. in Australian winter sports where it's obviously a little bit different to it is now and won a medal at the yeah. Olympics, something that's really not getting a focus, anything along those lines. So I can imagine it was a, a bit of a challenge, I guess, to kind of make your way up the ranks to go on that international scene. Yeah, it definitely was, you know, it was pretty grassroots back then. Um, vast majority of people that were involved here in Australia were Europeans. There was a lot of Austrians um, out here and what's been, you know, what a lot of people don't actually recognise is that a lot of the really successful European coaching staff have actually started their career in Australia. And with that, they bring obviously a lot of experience, but um, a, a huge amount of enthusiasm and excitement for the sport, which, you know, generally Australians, especially back then, didn't, you know, everyone's excited, but those guys come in, they're so, they're just, they're just frothing, right? And they have the ability to to identify a skill that could be successful on a world stage. Um, and, and fortunately enough for me, um, you know, one of a few of my coaches were European when I was a young kid and, and they sort of took me under their wing. And, you know, that was when we started traveling overseas um, when, at a pretty early age and, you know, just, there's no point in going half 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 half-hearted. It's just uh, it was an all all-out attack for me from every race, and that was, I guess, proved to be um, you know the turning point for me to be able to to show that I could make make the game on the world stage. And was that then something when you started going on the world stage, things like that, that something like an Olympics became something that you wanted to strive towards? Or was this something as a young kid that you automatically were like, this is this is a goal. I want to go to an Olympics one day. Uh, probably wasn't just, it probably wasn't the Olympics that was my goal. Um, it was to make a career out of ski racing, uh, was the number one thing. So, you know, I realized that if I could go skiing and I, and I was a sucker, right? Like every day I was, every day that we weren't training, I was skiing from first lift to last lift. Like I just loved it. And my coaches used to hate me for it because, you know, as we know now, sports science is a major player in in being a successful athlete, and you need downtime, you need time off, and I just was, I just refused. So, um, you know, whatever I could do to to turn skiing into a into a career path and ensure that I could keep skiing for a you know significant period of my life, then I was going to do it. So, um, back to the question, Olympics wasn't necessarily the number one goal, but it was it was one hundred percent formed a part of what I was trying to achieve. I believe you first went international sort of late 90s period around that time and anybody who knows a little bit about alpine skiing in australia in the late 90s obviously would remember zali winning bronze back in nagano yeah. our only ever alpine medal what was that like as an alpine skier to see someone from australia win an olympic medal was that <coughs> inspiring to kind of see that i mean oh, yeah. you know, to see that happen because i can imagine for the sport that was a massive boost in that period yeah, that was huge. Yeah, it was massive. I mean, I, uh, what was that in 1998? So I was 17. Um, it was, you know, for me, funding in those early years, you know, it was relatively hard to come by. And 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 as I'm sure you're aware, you know, the way the funding models work is someone, some one or number of athletes need to achieve at the highest level. And then the funding gets pushed back down into the into the, the the entry level of sport, and then it sort of works its way back up again, and and you create this pathway. So, for us, um, 
you know, that was extremely exciting to see that Zali had been able to achieve, you know, at the Olympic Games. She'd already been um, very successful in the World Cup anyway. So, you know, she wasn't like she was um, coming from far left field. However, it sort of really solidified that alpine skiers from Australia can succeed, um, you know, as, as well as anyone else in the world. When it comes to choosing the disciplines in Alpine, you mentioned obviously you like to go fast, you know, we were thinking about things like the downhill, the super G, but I believe you ended up becoming quite uh, partial to the slalom, which uh, obviously mm. was Ali's speciality and not as fast yeah. as the downhill. But, I mean, is that something that you just gradually grow to liking because you're more attuned to it? I mean, kind of how do you work out that, hey, this is what I maybe prefer over the downhill and other events that you do have in Alpine skiing? Yeah, so as a junior racer, you, you dabble in a bit of everything, um, you know, so you're not necessarily just honing your skills into slalom or giant slalom from the age of 13 or 14, 15, whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, as as you're progressing through your, um, you know, through your developmental f- phases and pathway it's um you know it becomes pretty apparent what you're you know more akin to succeeding in uh and slalom and giant slalom slalom in particular was um was something that i just started to to i guess achieve in at a at a relatively high level pretty quickly uh so you know as I said, if it was, if I was skiing, I was happy. Um, I loved all the disciplines and sometimes I'd have a little conundrum within myself to go, oh, maybe I should do a bit more downhill or maybe I should do a little bit more of this. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody loves to succeed and, um, and, and hopefully stand on that top step of the podium. And that was, I was able to achieve that more regularly in slalom. So we, you know, we sort of started to specialize a little bit more towards the end of my teens and into my early twenties in, in, in that direction. It is such a crazy discipline to think that somebody wants to ski through sticks that you're bashing your legs into <laughs> left, right. I mean, it just it it just seems right. like one of these crazy sports that people do. But I guess if you're good at it, who gives a shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it, you're right, and it's um. There's a few things that like you know when you're looking from the outside and you're not involved in 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 skiing slalom you haven't done before that you don't quite recognise. It's it's a it's a real art form and. You, you have to, there's certain body types that will perform very well. So you have to have extremely fast twitch fibers. So, you know, you need to, you need to be extremely agile um, to be able to move quickly between those gates and create speed every time. Otherwise you're always behind the line. Um, And, and that was something that was, you know, it's, everything's coming at you so quickly. You have to, you know, it's, it's hundreds or thousands of a second that you're making decisions and movements and putting your legs or your arms or your hips or wherever, you know, into different positions. So that was, that's really exciting. I just love the, whilst you're not going as fast, everything's coming at you a lot faster because you've got these things trying to, you know, hit you in the head. Um, and you've got to, you've got to get down to the bottom as fast as you can. And the psychological element too, I mean, God, I, I struggle to remember sometimes, you know, what I'm doing in the morning and what order I'm doing it, let alone going down a bloody ski slope that fast while having to remember what order you're going to go left, right, left, right, things like that. I mean, how do you work on that mentality aspect of it outside of the physical things? Because I can imagine that's just equally important in something like slalom. Yeah, across all disciplines, um, you know, memorising the course and, and being able to look ahead and adjust to the, to the line or to the rut that's been formed by the prior earlier races. Um, you know, that's all part and parcel across every discipline and, and, and mental focus is, is one of the, 
the largest contributors to an athlete's success in ski racing, um, be it remembering the course, um, dealing with changes in, 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 in conditions or light or temperature or snow conditions, dealing with the pressures of, you know, competition, um, you know, all of those things, you know, the mental game is absolutely massive. And like you said, you've, you sort of, you have to remember it. And, but we do that every day in training, right? So every day you're training, you're going out, you look at the course before you start skiing it and you go, okay, right. There's, there's this turn here and that turn there and there's a combination or there's a whatever. Um, so it just becomes second nature that that's just part and parcel of everyday life. Were there things that you could do outside of what you were just saying there with the course aspect? Like, I don't know, you, you, you read a couple of brain teasers, do some Sudoku, like something that really kind of gets the mind thinking that can work on a mental aspect of things. Uh, back that, you know what, we, you know, we were not, there wasn't that much tech around when I was traveling. Um, so, you know, iPhones and whatnot, uh, and tablets and, you know, wireless internet all around the world was not easily accessible back then. So we, we didn't, you know, that didn't really ever come to the forefront. Um, pretty much, you know, you, your mind's turned on as once you're on the hill, you know, you're, you're switched on, you're at a hundred percent. So you, you get in the start gate and it's, it's go time. There's no, there's no point in, um, you know, going in at 50%. It's just, you, you turn on and you hit the hammer. You ultimately make your Olympic debut in, in Turin, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but that period sort of late 90s through the early 2000s when you're going on the international scene, making your way through the ranks, the junior ranks, I believe at one point you were ranked number two for your age discipline in, in the slalom in, in on the world, so kind of making through those ranks. I mean, was Salt Lake a possibility sort of in that period or kind of was it always if you were looking towards an Olympics 2006, Turin was always that goal, and if Salt Lake had it happened, it would have happened. Um, Salt Lake is an interesting story. Um, and I'm sure that someone from the AOC would have a different version to me. Um, however, I was injured. I got injured. I did my first ACL, um, ligament break in just prior to the world championship event in St. Anton in 2001 at the world junior champs actually. And, um, and that 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 event in San Antonio was the was the qualifying event for the 2002 games. Now, obviously, I couldn't compete. Um, I then returned to competition the following season, and um, let's just say that I was proving that I had the ability to be on the Olympic team alongside my athletes, and had um, done that a number of times over. And unfortunately, the powers that be disagreed. Um, and, and look, I totally understand that there's, there's, there's rules and regulations and, and systems and processes that need to be followed, um, because the flow on effects can be, can be to other sports and other events can be, um, can be detrimental. So, um, unfortunately I was denied the ability to go and ski in Turin, uh, sorry, in Salt Lake, um, to the point that I actually, I ended up getting told I could compete and I flew there and then Lant got off the plane and was told I wasn't allowed to compete. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was a bit of a, uh, you know, a mind game. So um, yeah, unfortunately my, my goal was to compete in Salt Lake. I actually, my original goal when I was a kid was to do five, to go to five games um, was if, if I, if I thought if I could stay uninjured, I'd be able to go um, all the way through, you know, so what would that be? 2002, 6, 10, 14, 18. So, through, wow, yeah. Um, so, um, anyway, look, it didn't happen and we missed out on Salt Lake. And then, uh, and then the focus turned on to back into the World Cup 
um, improving improving world rankings and and just kicking on from there and continuing the dream. So did you stay in Salt Lake? Like did, were you there and you yeah. thought you might as well cheer on the team or and like partied up? Fuck you guys! I'm just going to leave this up right now. Or was it the case of I'm I'm going to go now? This Pretty is, much this is bullshit. No, well, there was a bit of there was there was there was a fair bit of the BS commentary. Um, however, no nah, man, I was sticking around. Like yeah, yeah, for sure, it was. We lived it up, and actually, I had been training with the British team at the time, and and a, and a really good friend and teammate of mine, Alan Baxter. He won the bronze medal um, in slalom in that event to then controversially have it taken away from him to then controversially have his name cleared later at a later date. Um, and so, you know, obviously we didn't know that was going to take place. So we absolutely let it Salt Lake rip on that evening of the slalom event. Um, I so can I was there imagine. In the, in the stands watching, talked my way into the after parties and, um, <laughs> you know, it was like, screw it, let's go. Yeah. So, yeah, it was good. It was, it was good fun. You, you've got to find you've got to find the positives, right? And um, and I think you know, coming back to mindset, <clears throat> you know, you get challenge, you get thrown challenges and um, adversities all the time as an athlete. Um, and and fortunately, you know, I was able to stay positive throughout that experience. And then and then actually the week after the Olympics, um, we had a Noram Cup, which is like the B level in the next level down in in um, in in Maine in um in in America and we had we had we had three of the four US Olympic team athletes there who were all top 15 and um and I managed to win the race so wow. it was a um it was a big up yours to the authorities um back in Australia uh, you know and I, I don't I don't I don't I don't harbor any re- resentment I was obviously bummed out about it but um you know, I guess it was nice to be able to say, "Hey, I know that's the rules, and you had to follow them." But you, I think you might have made the wrong wrong decision in this case. So, and yeah, when when it comes, I mean, obviously, if you don't want to go into it, don't go into it. But when you say the rules, was it like a quota thing? Was it kind of based on qualification times? I mean, kind of what was it that these rules that basically you didn't get that slot in Salt Lake? Uh, it's just it was just a, qual- a qualification criteria which I was unable to achieve at a, at that race in St Anton because um, I couldn't compete. So and then there was a second criteria which was which was significantly harder and um, you know I, I I didn't make it. I had a number of um, DNFs in those events um, in the following season. So look, I I totally understand you know why it happened and everything like that. Um, I would love to see probably a little bit more discretion being used for for extenuating circumstances but that's not the world we live in you know there's politics in sport um and like i said before you know if they've made an exception for me that would have had a massive flow-on effect to you know who knows what in winter sports or summer sports or you know you never know so i um i 100 respect the that decision and that what the what the the you know the leaders at in their positions at the time had to do um i just was bummed out about it you know that's the bottom line and then do you use that to spur you on? I mean, you mentioned straight oh, after yeah. a week later, that, but four years' time, you've got another Olympics to push towards you. So I can imagine that spurs you on to go towards Turin. Yeah, 100%. You know, like you've, you've got to find – when there's adversity thrown at you, you've got to use it, you know, to, to, to create some form of push and power to keep you going, you know. There's no point. I don't, I don't know anyone who's, um, you know, come up with an issue, an injury or, or a situation like I had faced in, in Salt Lake 
um, and then gone gone and sat in the corner and bitched and moaned about it and had a great outcome. So, you know, it's something that we teach our our kids. We've got two kids now that are eight and ten, and and you know, whilst yeah, you're allowed to by all means, um, you know, reflect and take time to deal with those situations, but you know, get get getting bummed out and upset over for a long period of time isn't going to get you past the situation that you're facing. So, um, you know, you've got to take on some resilience and 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 use that whatever it is that you've come across to spur you on to do better. So when it came to 2006, you're selected, you're off the plane, you're there. Was there still a yep. part of you thinking like, shit, don't take this away from me? Or were you 100% now, this is mine now. You can't take this away from me now. I am an Olympian. Uh, no, the, the way, you know, Australia is pretty good. If you if you qualify for the within the criteria and, and, and you, you know, the quota spots are there and they're available, you know, they don't, they generally wouldn't tell tell us that we're going and then go, oh, actually, hang on a second. No, no, you're not now. Um, mind you, I have heard that happening, um, but didn't happen to me. And and I was confident that once I'd met that criteria for 2006, um, you know, we're all across the rules of the of the, um, the IOC and quota spots and whatnot. So we knew that was going to happen and it was just a matter of not getting hurt um, prior, to, prior to the Olympics and making sure that we were in good shape to go and, and compete as best we could. So what was that moment like then when you achieved that quota, when you knew then you were going to the Olympics? Was it a sense of achievement, like amazing, or do you kind of just, okay, cool, going to the Olympics, switch focus to that, it's another event, I've got to focus for that now? Um, bit of A and a bit of B, you know, obviously obviously stoked to to be able to, um, you know, represent our country and, and go, I mean, it's like, the highest level that you can achieve in sport, right? So, um, very few people get to get to be able to go and compete at the Olympic Games, um, and so to be able to do that, you know, the first thing is, you know, just I was stoked. Um, the second thing, I was pretty relieved actually because uh, you know it's a mind game competing and meeting criteria, and because you know it's not a, it's not a walk in the park by any means. Um, back when for for 2006 and 2010, anyway, the ones I was competing in. So you know it was it was not an easy easy um, goal to achieve to be able to get to the to the world rankings and whatnot and meet the criteria. So there was you know a bit of a weight off the shoulders once you've done that because there's a lot of expectation going to the Olympic Games and being on the national team for a number of years and all of those um, you know scenarios that play out. So uh, and then you know once you've once we we did recognize that we'd met the criteria and it was all confirmed. It was like, right, well, you know, obviously we've got a really, really big goal to, to strive towards. And um, you know, it's just extra motivation again, to continue to kick ass, which is great because then that flows onto the rest of the season in the world cup and Europa cup and everything else that's going on. Always love to hear about Olympic experiences from our guests. Things like if you did the opening or closing ceremonies, village life, in collecting, bumping into Sean White, people like that. I mean, did you sort of soak that up in Turin or was that something that when you got to Vancouver, you kind of took more note of that because it's sort of a different period around going to your second Olympics rather than your first Olympics? Uh, we So on the on the ceremonies, generally in Alpine skiing, so in in, in, in Turin and Vancouver, I was competing in the downhill, uh, sorry, well, the downhill combined in Turin and then the downhill in Super G in um, 
in Vancouver and the training days for those, for that downhill um, race, you, you have to have training days on the course because of the danger, the level um, of which you're skiing at and, and the speed and whatnot. So those training days are always, you know, either prior to or on the, um, the, the opening ceremony days. So unfortunately it doesn't make sense to go down to the opening ceremony um, because it's, you know, you can imagine, I think the guys in Vancouver, they ended up getting back from Vancouver from the ceremony at like three 30 in the morning. And then a few of them were getting up at six o'clock to get on the Hill to do the training. So that's not, you know, by no means is that advantageous to your performance. Um, so we missed that, but in, in Turin, you know, I'm pretty relaxed. Um, I, I kind of say hi to everyone. I'm not too not too shy about about getting involved and having a chat and whatnot. Depend, you know. But Turin, we were you know the Alpine events were were separated. They were in Sestria, so it was just the Alpiners, um, pretty much who were who were in that village. Um, there might have been uh, some Alpine cross country and 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 maybe one other crew were, were in that village. So it was a pretty small group of people. Um, but you know, we took full advantage of uh, of the Italians being nice and relaxed to the point that um, the last night after the slalom, we had you know my whole family was there and we had a big party and I don't, I don't know whatever time we were heading home and my. Um, my sister, when the last bus was leaving for the next village around the corner where my sister was staying, she was like, no way, I'm coming back to the village with you guys. And I kind of look at her like, uh, there's 20-foot high fences and you don't have accreditation and yada, yada. <laughs> so um, she's pretty crafty. So anyway, she uh, she decided that's what she was doing. And, um, you know, late in the morning, we, I walked through the gate and she, she jumped like a 20 foot high fence and then <laughs> convinced the security guard that she was someone from the team and she wasn't. And then, then you know, it was, it was pretty funny. Fortunately, there was this, wow. there was this, uh, like an opa, you know, like an old, old Italian gentleman who, who, who was watching it all unfold and came up to the guy who was trying to kick us out and was just like, Hey, hey, see, see, it's okay. Look, he's going to have a good time the last night. It's okay. Let him go and go and have a good time, guys. Everything's okay. And so, you know, we could wow. manage that. And, um, and it was cool, actually, the next morning, my coach at the time, Helmut Spiegel is his name, and, and you know, he wasn't out that late. And and my sister and I are walking down to the breakfast hall, and Helmut's walking up the up up the up the stairwell, and she's like, "Oh, hey, Helmut!" And he's, "Oh, hey, Katie!" And then did a full double take, turned around, like, "What the? Fuck? <laughs> what are you <laughs> How doing did you get in here?" <laughs> it was a long story. We're going for breakfast. So, um, wow. Yeah, it was it was pretty funny. So anyway, it was uh, you know the Olympics is you know you've got to you've got to go and you've got to make take full advantage of what's on offer and you know if you didn't come out with it some some decent story then i reckon you've done it wrong well i think you ended up going to two pretty good olympics and also being at salt lake as well i mean to have salt lake followed by Turin, followed by vancouver i mean you know no disrespect to yeah. the last few olympics but i can't imagine if you had gone to russia you would have been doing some of those uh similar things so uh yeah i think i think you you went to a few good ones there john yeah, it was good. It was really fun. And, um, you know, the Olympic experience, if, if anyone's got the chance to, to enjoy it, be it competing or in, in another role, you know, grab it with both hands. I've got to I've got to mention Turin. I mean, you obviously, you know, completely separate, as you said, basically from the rest of the team. But 
you know, Turin. Everyone thinks of Turin in Australia. They think of the great Dale Beg Smith. Did you ever bump yeah. shoulders with Dale at all? I know a different type yeah. of scheme, but was something. And did you did you end up getting partying with him on his private island? Did he ever invite you out there at some point? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. My pop ups were blocked. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, the inventor of pop ups, Dale Big yep. Smith. Um, look, we we uh, Dale was a, a unique character. Obviously, an incredible athlete. You know, so focused and um and and just you know professional. And he was great. He was a great athlete. And he was great to be able to come and compete for Australia and do what he did. And that is really that you know set off a, a, a great chain reaction for the rest of um, to, to what it is today to where we saw Jakara winning this year. Um, you know, we didn't really hang out much. Um, yeah, that's you know, we, we sort of we bump shoulders. You see each other at a few different things, and um, but that's pretty much it. You know, you're on a very different path. You know, every discipline's going into different parts of the world, and uh, but yeah, we 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 certainly caught up with everyone at the closing ceremony in Turin and um, and also in Vancouver and and you know let it rip had a good time that's that's the main thing if I'm also not mistaken I do believe Turin was the last time Bruce McAvaney did a winter Olympics and I do believe he commentated alpine skiing if I I remember so I mean you you can yeah, say listening. you at least had Bruce commentate <laughs> you so I mean that's a big big honor in itself as well yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we're well, talking with Matty Hill my man my uh my, my my lead commentator for this year's Olympics um he has much love for Bruce he, he holds him in the highest of regards so if Bruce was commentating me crashing into the nets in Turin, then uh, that is going to, going to put that on the highlights list. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Because, yeah, obviously <laughs> Channel 9 had Vancouver, then Channel 10 had Sochi, and then I don't think Bruce was in Pyeongchang and obviously didn't do Beijing. So, um, yeah, you could have that weird distinction uh, as of right now of Bruce's last Winter Olympics and he commentated you crashing. Oof. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, feeling good. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, obviously on the my morning. <laughs> exactly. There you go. You can take that. That's better than coffee. Um, but I mean, just on the performance, Super Combined and Salem, obviously not finishing mm. both of them. I mean, I can't imagine leaving Turin. You're satisfied with not finishing both of them. Yeah. But I mean, do you? How did you leave those Olympics? Did it spur you on again to go over another four years to go? Okay, well, I've made the Olympics, but I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve. So bring on yeah. another four years. Yeah, that was pretty difficult. Hey, um. That was my, I was, I was in the best form of my career. I'd won a Europa Cup leading into that. Um, I had some, some really encouraging performances on the World Cup and was feeling really good. And then even, um, you know, in that combined, I hadn't been skiing much downhill uh, up and, you know, for years until that season. And then I had a 14th in the combined in Chamonix leading into the games and, you know, sort of, you know, the term for us is you ski out of your boots. Um in the downhill, which was great. And, and then, and then leading into the, the, the um, actual event, the combined event, you know, we had the training runs like we talked about and three or four training runs. And I was, you know, I was consistently out there with the fastest guys and, um, you know, looking back, you know, some of my career, some of the issues that I, or, I guess crashes or problems or whatever you want to call it that I had through my career was I was charging too hard. You know, I was always at a hundred percent or trying to go past a hundred percent. And, and that's what exactly what I did in Turin. I, I knew I was skiing fast. I had, I had 
super good equipment. Um, I was getting really great support from my ski company at the time. Uh, and, you know, to the point, I think I, in the speed traps, I was top three, you know, three days in a row or something. Um, I was, you know, I was going really, really well. And I just pushed too hard and, um, you know, made a stupid mistake and which I, you know, made a move that I hadn't done all week. And I just thought, I can, I can gain another hundredth of a second here. And it was, um, it was obviously not the right thing. So I ended up in the nets and looking back at that, you know, the split time prior to my crash, I think I was three hundredths behind the guy who ended up coming third. Um, and you know, who knows, there's, there's still the rest of the downhill course and there's still a slalom run to go, but, um, he and I, I'd been, I'd been consistently faster than him in the downhill portions all week. And then I'd been on par with him in slalom for the whole season. So, um, you know, probably the, the the, the most difficult thing is the what ifs, um, when you're, when you're at that level and you just make a, you make a dumbass mistake. Um, so, you know, that was, that was certainly a bit of pill to swallow after the, after the combined day. Um, I, I helped swallow that bit of pill with a few beers, uh, <laughs> and took, and took a few days off. Um, and then, and then coming into the slalom, you know, I was like, right, redemption time again. And you know, whatever, I made it like 15 or 20 gates or something and straddled and a straddle is where one, the tip of your inside ski goes on the inside of the, of the gate. Right. And in a lot of the time it's, you know, it's, it's something that, um, it is just unfortunate. You, you just, you, you, you make a move, you know, your skis on, on three centimeters or a centimeter too close to the gate. When you initiate the turn, it's just something that can happen. Um, so, you know, that was like, you know, there's a lot of tough questions at the end of that games. Um, just, you know, thinking about why, you know, being on the best form of my life and going to the biggest events and, and, you know, why I couldn't have gone the other way. But um, again, you know, you, I've had surgery. I think I've lost count actually how many times I've had surgeries, like 12, maybe 15. I don't know. But every time you have a surgery, you like, it's the same thing. Like far out. Why did that happen to me? Why did I crash? Why did I do that? And you've got to stop that thought immediately and just go right now. What do I do to get back to where I was or get, you know, further ahead? And how do I, how do I, you know, fix the issues that I've been dealing with? So, um, you know, Turin was, a really great experience and certainly not what I was hoping to come away with, but, um, shit, mate, that's life. Is it just a competitive nature in an athlete that gets you over those humps that you're just talking about? Kind of that, that will to keep going, knowing that you, what you are capable of in those what if scenarios that had things gone a different way, you could be sitting here 16 years later talking about it completely differently. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think so. Um, you know, I, I, I'd proven a number of times in, as a junior and, and early in my twenties that, that I had the ability to, um, to ski as fast as, or at least close to as fast as anyone else. Um, I, I probably never would have been the Marcel Hersher of the world or the Michaela. Well, I know I wouldn't have been the Marcel or the Michaela. That's, there's guarantee on that, but you know, I always thought I could be in the top 10 or top 15 in the world. And, and I, and I sort of proved that with, with a few different results. And, um, you know, once you, once you have that knowledge, then you sort of, you're spurred on, right? Like you're like, okay, I've done it once before I've done it twice before I did it in training or I did it in this or whatever, you know, you've got, you've got that sort of, um, fire to be able to keep pushing. And that's just, you know, that's just what you've got to do if you want to succeed. You talk about those surgeries. It's fascinating to hear. I don't even remember how many surgeries you've had, but what 
give us a bit of an insight into an alpine skier's injuries. I'm guessing there's lots of leg injuries, I'm assuming, kind yeah. of based on the, the sport. I mean, is that where the majority of those surgeries are coming on, on your legs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knees, knees in particular. So, you know, I mentioned the ACL, so the anterior cruciate ligament. There's a lot of, um, that's the most common, uh, you know, body part to, to, to blow up or break. Um, so just the forces that are, that are created in alpine skiing are quite extraordinary. Uh, and you know, it only takes one small mistake or a bump in the snow that you don't see or whatever it may be. So, you know, legs, knees, legs, um, hips, backs, like my, my teammate, Craig Branch, he had, he had significant problems with, um, with his, with his back where a lot of compression in, in his vertebrae and, um, bulging discs and herniated, herniated discs in his, in his spine. And, um, you know, that is absolutely debilitating. So, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a professional skier of any discipline, alpine or otherwise, you know, moguls will be the same and slope style as well, that isn't pushing the limits and unfortunately, you know, getting injured. Um, and, and those ones, those athletes that are probably going to be the most successful and have the longest career are the ones who can, who can manage the recovery time and get back on, get back on the horse and cracking. Is it a case of, when you see someone like Ian Healy or Adam Gilchrist, you know, years of wicket keeping, their fingers are all disjointed and bent and mangled. Like if you are at a beach in shorts, so your knees and legs kind of all disjointed and the skiers, <laughs> like, you know, you can go to a beach, oh, they're a skier, look at their legs. <laughs> uh, you know what, time heals all wounds, man. Um, so... <clears throat> I can certainly walk all right. Running's not not my thing. I went for I went for a run with my daughter for I think it was probably about maybe a kilometer the other day. And at the turn at 500 meters, she's training for a cross country. And at the turn, I was just like, oh God, oh God let's get home. Like it's um, you know, so in normal if I'm just walking to the bar to get a beer, you can't tell the difference. But uh if you were to, you know, if you if you saw me in my shorts, you'd see a few scars and um, you know, that's just, well, it's part and parcel, right? Like, so, so basically you're saying if I challenge you to a sprint, I might actually win. There's a high chance that I won't be going very far. I'll go really fast for like 15 <laughs> metres. <laughs> that, has nothing, boom. that has nothing to do with the fact that I've been to the gym three times in the last 12 years. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a bit competitive, but if I want to beat an Olympian, I'll just yeah, choose my good. disciplines to do it, right? You know, yeah, I'm not going to be the same bolt at sprint, but I might be the same bolt at skiing. So it's like John O'Brien. I'm not going to beat you at skiing, but I might beat you at a sprint. There you go. Let's do it. Hey, just uh, I'm I'm thinking with that one. Going into Vancouver, though, I mean, do you set yourself sort of based on the form you were going into it? Was it a case of okay, I want to finish at least this time around, or like, do you set yourself goal like I want to get top twenty, top thirty? Sort of what was that mentality going into your second Olympics? Yeah, another tough one. Hey, um, uh, I'd I'd qualified um the season prior so february yeah february 20 um what was that 2009 uh and and i'd met the criteria so i knew i was safe i knew i I'd, I'd done everything i needed to do to um to, to get my spot for the games um and was confident that that i'd be going um and again i, I by that stage i'd actually changed disciplines so after my whatever surgery it was i can't remember um essentially you know the, one surgeon that I was dealing with in Austria who was, who did a lot of work with the Austrian team was like, listen, you know, your, your knees are cooked. Like it's done. 
you know, hang your boots up. And I'm like, man, I'm not hang my boots up for what? Like, no, I'm not doing it. Um, and, and, and so anyway, um, I, they, they, we originally, we eventually agreed on that. If I can, if I can change out of slalom, because the, the problem with slalom skiing is that the impact is really short and sharp and you're doing it. You know, you might do it. You might make the thousand turns a day. Right. So my patella tendons that in my knee were just getting absolutely reamed and, and I, my body wasn't able to heal the, 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 the problem fast enough. Um, so I was, ta- you know, there's lots of injections and there was lots of painkillers and all sorts of things for me to continue skiing. It was just not sustainable. So, so we eventually made the decision. We'll, we'll switch to speed. We'll go to super G and downhill and give that a shot. Um, and that season in 2009, I just come, come off a, a patella tendon surgery, um, and was just just hitting my stride. Had a couple of good results in Europa Cup. Sort of, you know, got my world ranking from whatever it was when I started 400 in the world down to I think I think I got to 62, 67, something like that. So you know that first step is getting into the top 100. So I achieved that, and I was like, right, we're back, we're back, baby. <laughs> and um, you know, through those Europa Cup results, managed to managed to meet the criteria for the Olympics for the following year, and then two weeks later, at Europa Cup finals. Um, uh, basically put my leg into the, into a hole, you know, in the middle of a turn doing around hundred Ks an hour. And then the flow and effect of that was I put my tibia eight millimeters into the base of my femur, um, Ouch. and then high sided off a roll and sort of, you know, cartwheeled and I don't know how many times and, um, pretty much just obliterated the, the lateral, the outside, um, of my, of my right knee. Um, so a lot of bone damage, no ligaments, a lot of no cartilage or meniscus left. Um, so got a, got a free chopper ride that day to the hospital. Um, yeah, great. And, uh, and then, you know, had surgery, made a comeback, but you know, the trauma in my right leg was, was really, um, you know, it, the, I kind of knew that I, there was a really, really slim chance that I was never going to be able to compete at, at a high level again. Um, so I, because I'd already met the criteria, I had, you know, committed to that season leading into Vancouver. Um, and we trained and we, I had, a, you know, a fantastic physio who was working with us, um, Simon Ruse, who is an absolute legend. And he's done a lot of work with the, with it, with the moguls team in particular over the, the last decade. Um, after finishing up with Craig and I, and um, you know, he got me, he got me back on the hill and skiing. But you know, let's just say the downhill at the Olympics was my first downhill race of the season. So, um, wow. you know, leading into the games where you should be doing, you know, maybe you're doing ten or I don't know, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen runs a day. If I was lucky, I was getting maybe I'd get three runs every two or three days um, in training. So, just you know. A lot of cortisone injections, a lot of painkillers to get into the start gate for that event. So, um, you know, I, I'd given myself the time frame of of the end of Jan if I was still in as much pain at the end of Jan as I was in July when I first started skiing after my injury. Um, then I I knew that that was probably the um, tools down, and that was exactly it was only getting worse actually. So. Um, so yeah, mate. So that was so I knew going into Vancouver that that was going to be my last event, and obviously going in completely undercooked. Um, 
is not what you want to be doing when you're, you know, the whole world's watching. <laughs> and it's, you, you know, you, you, when you think of your last event, you want to, you want to go out trying to win, not just trying to get to the bottom. So, um, but it's not every day you get the opportunity to go to the Olympic games and, um, you know, I had a lot of friends and family there and that, that really made the experience unforgettable. And, um, you know, one one positive, probably the biggest positive, was that the downhill and Super G finished early in the first week. So that meant that I had my I was sponsored by Red Bull at the time, so I had my Red Bull party pass and uh, and my accreditation. So I got, I went anywhere and I took all yeah. my mates with me for the next ten days. <laughs> so lift it up, know, yeah, you got to live it up, and you know, get to numb like, the pain somehow. Why not with a bunch of Red Bull? Well, yep, and lots of other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, liquid, liquid form that is. I was an athlete, retired athlete, um, and so uh, yeah. So no, we 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 went and enjoyed Australia. You know, there's a lot of Aussies in Whistler. Well, I was going to uh, say it's of, basically a home Winter Olympics for Australia and yeah, Whistler, yeah, isn't right. it? Come on, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, we, there was a lot of friends there who were living there, and a lot of my mates that I, you know, when you're skiing on the world cup or, or at a high level, you know, everybody's going around in a similar direction, you know? So we were great friends with the Canadians and, and a lot of Canadian um, guys are from that area and, and girls and, um, you know, and their families and friends. So it was just, it was really fun. It was, a, it was a super enjoyable time. Unfortunately, you know, my body wasn't playing the game. Um, and yeah, that was, that was it. You still finished both events, though. So you got 30th in the Super G, 39th in the, in the downhill. I mean, obviously, with everything that you had gone through from that injury in July to even just getting to the damn Olympics, I mean, can you reflect back 12 years later and kind of look at that as an achievement that you finished and, and finished quite well? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my brain works in a way that if I've done it once, I can do it again, no matter what's going on at the time. Right. So I was, you know, I was fully convinced that I could ski to to the top, to a top 15 potential, you know, mind over matter is a pretty amazing thing. And, and a couple of that with a bit of adrenaline, you can, you know, going into that super G event, um, you know, I had ice, I had my, uh, I had multiple cortisone shots coming in that week leading in and, um, you know, a lot of anti-inflammatories and painkillers and things. And I had my eye, my knee just wrapped in ice for like an hour, like literally till about 30 seconds before I went out the gate. Um, so, you know, you kind of go, <clears throat> once you, once I got out of the start gate, you can't feel the pain. You just, you're in, you're in the moment. So, and, and when, when you're not feeling the pain, well, you can, you can, you, you, you can push your body. I mean, a lot of athletes have done this. You know, they've been able to succeed under really trying and difficult circumstances and, and being injured and whatnot. And so um, you know, I was I was I was expecting to be to be better than 30th. Um I was happy that I was in the top 30. Um, you know, there was there was some athletes that that competed better than me on the day, obviously, and uh and, and that I would have liked to, you know, that because you always put someone you always put someone else's achievements as a as a bit of a, a um you know a marker. And yeah, so I would have loved to have done better in my last race. Um, and finish, just just finishing was never really like a goal for me ever in my life. It's you know, I just started doing some some mountain bike races, some enduro races with my kids. And uh, you know, I go to the start and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to take it easy. Yeah, I'm just like never raced mountain bikes before. And then as soon as the freaking start gates there and the guy's going, you've got ten seconds. It's like. I call it the red mist, right? <laughs> the red mist, the red mist just descends over my eyes 
and all consequence is out the window and it's like, <laughs> must win at all costs. <laughs> like I'm a complete idiot. So um, so it doesn't matter, you know, like I've done the same thing in motocross that I've never raced motocross before but thought I could go in and win the bloody race, you know. like. <laughs> like I do that with so, all my sporting teams that I go for, John. I'm like, yeah, Carlton will win the premiership this year, <laughs> every year. No, it doesn't matter how crap our players are. We will win it this year. That's funny. So, um, you know, like I said, it's, 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 um, it was a great experience and uh, we had a great party. Which well, does you, I guess you partied up a little bit more maybe knowing that you retired and then kind of think like, fuck, I've got to work out my life after these games. But fuck, I'm just going to drink Red Bull for the next 10 days. And that, that's a future Jono problem. That's on the plane back to Australia problem. Right now it's, yeah. it's all about the fun. <laughs> Um, you can, you can probably ask that question to my wife. Um, I think <laughs> I do, I, I do a head in because that is exactly how I roll. Um, it's, uh, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with today and tomorrow we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So I'm a bit more, I'm a bit more, um, I guess strategic now that I have kids and, uh, you know, family and bills responsibilities. And all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to skirt them as hard as I can. So um, <laughs> that's why you're doing a podcast but, when you're meant to be working, right, Jono? Not, not yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, but no, mate. You know, like you've got to. I, I often, I often say to people like, because I didn't. I was that mentality took place my whole life, right? My mum wanted me to go, and you know, she was like, you need to do well in your HSC, and you need to get a good UAI, and then at least you don't have to go to university, but at least you can go to university. And I was like, what? I'm not going to university. I'm going to be a ski racer. And she's like, well, what if you're not going to be a ski racer? And I'm like, well, what if? I don't know. Like, I'm going to be a ski racer. And um, and so, you know, that's, that's you know, a, a lot of people, you know, the question is often, you know, come up like, well, what, what was your plan? And I was like, well, I didn't have a plan. My plan was just to do as much fun stuff as I could and, and, tr- and, and work it out and try and be successful. And I think, you know, that's led me to be, you know, to do a number of things um, in my life that I probably would have not done um, had I had a predetermined course, you know, had I had that piece of paper that says you're this or you're that. Um, I don't have, I don't have that that piece of paper. So I've got to make it up and I've got a minimum standard of living of which I would like to provide my family. And it's like, well, shit, eh? I better make that one work. What are we doing this week? Um, and, and that's proven to be a really good thing, a bit daunting um, at times and a little bit nerve wracking. I probably didn't sleep last much last night with a few things on my mind, but um, Thursday morning, nine o'clock. You're in America. I'm just cruising at home. Drop my kids at the bus. Go for a ride later. Yeah, you know, you've got to choose your own adventure. And um, at the end of the day, it's like going to the Olympics. You're not going to get there and uh, by taking it easy. You just got to put put the hammer down and work hard. It's a great attitude to have I think with that because it's I mean it's a whole other episode we could get into that that moment when you do retire and everything you're talking about kind of what is next but it it also I guess on the positive side of things it presents a bunch of opportunities that again as you were saying you probably didn't think you'd ever do I mean commentating an Olympic Games next to Matt Hill like I mean something like that which you know we talk about someone like Bruce McAvaney you got these people you look up to and then all of a sudden you're kind of in 
his position, which is, I can imagine, something you never thought you would be, is commentating on an Olympic Games a few years later. So things like that that present themselves, which I'm sure you just, you know, you jump at as soon as you get given the opportunity. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. That was that was great to be able to do that. I, um, as you can tell, I love talking, Mister Woolworth. So uh, <laughs> you it was, fit well you on know, this show, then, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> natural progression to go into uh, to to do that. I, you know, I really loved it, and I would love to do more of it. Channel Seven, eh? Taps, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that you know it is really exciting closing a chapter and opening a new one. Um, I had my my then girlfriend, now wife. Um, you know, she's awesome and she loved the adventure. So um, it was it was totally fine. It's a bit more bit more difficult to to pop and change about now, but I think that you know if you go in with your eyes wide open, you know, being a professional athlete, you meet so many amazing people. The doors that are open to you um, that that probably otherwise wouldn't be or would be more difficult to get your foot into. Um, you know, you, you meet really, really amazing people and, and forge some great relationships, which then, you know, you can ask a question of somebody later down the track to help you in that decision or that, 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 that strategy or, or, or direction or whatever it is you're going to do. Um, and I think that, you know, that athletic path is, is something, it just gives you so much opportunity no matter what. You also did a bit of coaching, I believe, after you had retired. I mean, what was that kind of like switching from doing the sport to then teaching the sport? Was it something that you enjoyed, something that maybe you'd like to get back into, kind of, you know, get some of the yeah. future alpine skiers that are up on the ranks in Australia at the moment? Yeah, I loved it. I love I loved coaching. Um, it's, I, you know, one, being on the mountain, you know, you know, and I do these things at the moment with Fred Bo where like, last season we did this um, – you know, sunrise sessions, this incredible experience at the resort here in Threadbow. And, and I was host, I'd host it with one of the marketing team and, um, and, you know, and it sucked. You get up at four o'clock or four 30 or whatever. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's four 30, you know, and it's <laughs> minus 10 degrees. What am I doing? And then as soon as I'm on the hill, like as soon as I'm on the snow, still in the dark, you know, putting everyone in a snow cat, I'm like, this is an amazing office. And then you go to the top of the mountain and you watch the sunrise and you're like, I would not give this up for anything like this is <laughs> next level. So, you know, coaching delivers that as well, because, um, you know, that's the, that's, that's what we, that's how we started our day, you know, seven, eight months a year for 15 years or however long I was doing it for. Um, and then to be able to do that, you know, to go back to coaching, you, you, you're in the same elements. Um, and that's amazing. The only problem was, that, uh, you know, I'd spent 20 years traveling the world with my coaching staff, like coaches, different coaches, different teams from all around the world. We trained with the Brits, we trained with the Canadians, we trained with the Swedes. Um, and pretty much every, every coach had the same problem, which was they were either, you know, not all of them. It's a, it's a generalization, but a lot of them were either, you know, divorced, getting divorced, didn't see their kids, uh, you know, not seeing their partner, all of that stuff. If, on that international stage where you're always traveling and because, because of our, you know, geographical location, you're always traveling, you know, you get sort of, you get a few months at home, three, four months at five months, maybe if you're lucky. Um, but there isn't, there is a ton of traveling. So I identified pretty early that if I was, you know, it was not long after, um, Vancouver that I, that I, that I dropped a knee on, on my wife, Caroline and, and we decided we want, you know, we wanted to start a family and all that sort of stuff. And it was a, it was a clear decision of, 
you know, at the time I was, I was coaching locally here and then the national junior team. So there was a bit of a path there as to what, what I could achieve and, and go and do. Um, but I just didn't think that that would be fair on, on, on Caroline and, and, you know, our soon to be kids, Lily and Banjo. So, um, made that decision and, um, you know, completely changed path and direction and went into something to a few things that were totally not ski related, but hmm. had to just had to make that decision and pivot and, and do the best for with, with, you know, for what I've, for what I, my family that I was creating. We'll ask about that in just one second, but just quickly, just on the topic of the future of Alpine in Australia, we've obviously just seen, you know, Louis, Greta and Catherine in, in Beijing, where are we at in terms of the future of the sport? Do we have some up and comers? Do you feel there's a positive future or do we still have a bit of work to go? Are we focusing too much on the freestyles and the snowboarding and we need to kind of get a bit of focus back into the uh, Alpine skiing? Uh, so, yeah, look, definitely there's some, there's, there's some talent in Australia. Um, you know, there's some great athletes and they're training really hard and they're putting in a lot of effort. Um, there was a couple of athletes that were unable to, to get to the games this year. Um, and they, you know, they certainly, they certainly, you know, got the potential to succeed. Uh, as far as Alpine and other sports and disciplines are concerned for Australia, you know, not taking away anything from, from, from any of the other disciplines, because it doesn't matter what discipline you're in, it's bloody hard to succeed. Um, but traditionally, Alpine skiing has the, you know, it has one of if not the highest uptake internationally um and and because of that and because of its rich history um you know alpine skiing has been going and racing has been sort of the 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 number one event throughout europe and um scandinavia and whatnot you know for for decades if not centuries uh and so so it's so ingrained in the roots of those cultures you know in austria germany switzerland norway Sweden, wherever it is, um, the depth of their program and talent pool is so phenomenal. Um, and the money that's, that's funneled into those programs is so, you know, the pockets are deep. Um, so for Australians to be competitive, uh, at a world stage, even when I was, when I was competing and, and, and my my teammates, Craig and Bradley and, and AJ and all those guys and back to Michael Dixon in 2002, um, and there was heaps of them actually I could go for ages um you know it was really hard to do it and it's still going to be really hard to do it um because we're just we just don't have the financial support to to go and and be on par with uh, with our team structure like Austria would so to give you an example on the world cup you'll see six Austrian team coaching or staff be that PR it could be it could be your PR through your physio through your ski techs through your actual coaches on the hill it's like six to one coaches to athletes or staff to athletes and so and we're on we're on the inverse right so we're the flip side of that in that we might be if we're lucky we're one to six um you know if we're not if we're not going off and training with another team so, and which was often the case, which we'd pair up with, with the likes of the Brits or the Canadians, you know, we'd pay a fee and we'd go in and we might take one support staff um, and then we utilize all their staff. That's how we were able to, to, to do it. So, you know, coming back to it, um, unfortunately, you know, Zali was the last one to really achieve um, on podium at world champs in the Olympics. Um, and since then, you know, we haven't, we haven't, 
got that continuation of funding to, 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 to build that pathway and that program and, and feed those young kids all the way to the top, um, you know, and, and, and snowboard and moguls and um, aerials and, you know, scoot across, like there's a lot of other sports that, you know, have been really successful in their own right. And it's been really hard for those, for those athletes to succeed, but they've done it. And now, you know, Australians, um, you know, as a general rule of thumb, they love to see winners. So if I'm the AOC and I've got Alpine skiing, which has, you know, whatever it has, 10,000 or 15,000 competitive men. Um, and, 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 and I haven't had a winter Olympic medal for, you know, what it's been 24 years um, versus snowboard um, or moguls or whatever, any other event, not, not going to pick any of them that are getting medals and does have depth of talent. Well, there's no way they're going to pull the cash out of, out of those, those events and put them into, into something that hasn't been performing for a couple of decades. Um, you know, that's just the bottom line. So it's going to be a super hard slog for Alpine in Australia to, um, to get back to that top. That, that that very highest level um, it's absolutely achievable we've proven that it can be done um, you know at one stage I think it was 2000 and, um, 2002 there was 11 of us on the national team and from memory I think we were all top 100 in the world um, wow. and some of us were top 50 so Jenny Owens and myself we were top top 50 when was that that was 2003 or four I think um, you know so so that Australia is full of talent. There's no doubt about that. It's just making sure that we get the pathway right and and the right people are involved at the right levels to ensure that you know the athletes are getting what they did, what they need to succeed. And then it can it can 100 be done. Well, I'm just saying this now. The time of recording this, we're a few weeks away yeah. from an election, and a certain skier who won that medal may or may not be involved in politics or seeking re-election. <laughs> so Zali, you've been on this show before. If you're listening, how about Thank we start campaigning money. for money for the sport that made you an Olympic yeah. medalist? So just, Zali, cool. come on. Good on you, Zali. Yeah. There's a good any, argument. Any... We're, we're great partiers if we don't succeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because is, there, is there any chance that you would switch into politics? Is this an alpine skiing route that if you're either partying or going to politics? You know what? I yeah, I'd hazard a guess and say that I shoot it a little too straight for politics. Um, that makes it more entertaining, good. though. Come uh, on, <laughs> it does. Yes, um, mm, probably not my preferred field. I don't know if my next pivot will be into politics, but you never know. Never know. Stranger things have happened. I mean, just on that topic, back to what you're saying before. I mean, what are you up to now? Give us, give us an insight into kind of what the life of John O'Brower is at the moment. Yeah, um, lots of things going on actually. So you know, after skiing, I um, after coaching, I did some. I just did some civil construction work. I was. Uh, I very quickly realised that I had a bobcat for a property that I owned. Um, so I was like, hmm, what can make me some money? Bobcat, sweet. So <laughs> I got into I got into some some contracting in that, but quickly realised moving dirt from you know one location to another for the next thirty years wasn't my bag either. So. I got into retail, so I, I opened a franchise store, a Total Tools franchise store in Canberra. Uh, we built that up um, um, to be pretty successful, and then we sold that in 2017. Um, and we did that because you know I, I just had this urge to get back to the mountains. Um, I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't happy sitting and and in an office all day and 
staring at a car park. So we moved back to the mountains with no plan. Um, my wife was a little bit concerned when I told her I wanted to sell the shop that was, you know, giving us a pretty cushy lifestyle. And she's like, and then what? And I'm like, I don't know, but let's go. <laughs> Yay. They all love to hear. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, a couple of things we did, we, we actually did get back into coaching and did, did a bit of work here in, in the Burbo, in the resort, set up a pathway program for, you know, uh, um, as well as alpine skiing across all disciplines. So snowboard and moguls and slope style as well. So um, that's a nationally accredited program now that, that Threadbow runs. So we ran that for a few years um, and then started actually on the, on the, off to the side of that, a, a coaching program in Italy where we, we take families, Australian families overseas and we, we, we run tailored training programs and family holidays um, throughout the school holidays in, in January and, uh, and April. And then I, my sort of my biggest focus at the moment is I, I started, I launched a, um, a brand of mountain bike apparel and protection, predominantly focused on kids. It's Sendy. There we go. There it is. Sendy. Um, look at there that. It is. Branded yeah, up. Oh, there there it is. Oh, branded oh, look at it. Yeah. Fantastic. There, there you go. Um, Shameless plug. No, uh, you, you, I'm going to give you, you have more. Where's the website? No, Where can wait, people find it? it? Come go. on. Sendy, www.sendygear.com. Perfect. So, you know, we're a small business, but we, you know, our, it started because I was moved back to the mountains. My kids wanted to get into riding and I couldn't find um, very much product available for them and didn't fit very well and it was really expensive. So um, I thought, you know, I've got a few contacts I can leverage here and I'll create a solution. So that's been going really well. We've got, um, we've got about 52 stores that are reselling and we also sell direct off our, off our e-commerce site. We've got a distributor in New Zealand that has around 25 stores now on board and um, we're starting to branch out into, into new markets. So that's, that's the, really the main focus of what I'm doing at the moment. And then, um, oh, sorry, I should say my number two focus. And then my number one focus is when I had my tool shop, um, I didn't really see my, my family, my kids and my wife. So I just worked hundred hour weeks and drank like 12 coffees a day. Um, so I had to kick that habit and, and, and spend some more time with the family. So that's my, that's my number one priority. And we're just building a house in Jindy at the moment. Great. And, um, yeah, just, you know, get into a nice rhythm and the kids ride bikes and motorbikes and we water ski and we ski obviously, and we, we try and travel as much as we can and, um, just, you know, try and find that balance, that work-life balance and, oh, sorry. <coughs> Excuse me, Um, try and find that work-life balance with the kids and just, just, you know, make the most of every day. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a perfect way to live it up, I say. What was that? Sendygear.com? That was, that's what yeah, it is? Yeah, that's it. Sendygear.com. Yep. So that's, um, you know, anyone need any, any great mountain bike gear from a small Australian business? Sendygear.com. It's it's where to go. Um, I I always give an opportunity for people to plug their things, and I'm glad you can do that now for it, John. Yeah, thanks, we like mate. to we do like to wrap up with a set of just fun little get to know you questions, which I'll get to in just a second. But before I do get to that, I've got to ask you one quick thing because you know during Beijing there was one woman that I was very much focused on. That's Queen Esther. Um, can we just talk up uh, the great Esther Ledecker right now? Like how amazing is she? Just, uh, <laughs> just yeah. uh, Any opportunity to bring her up, Jono, when we're amazing. talking alpine skiing. Yeah. I mean, come on, we've got to bring oh, her you, up, oh, right? You're talking about, about because of her athletic ability. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What else would they be talking about? <laughs> I have no idea what else you'd be talking about there. Yeah, she's um, a, phen- a phenom. You know, like it's it's hard enough. You know, we we touched about it on Alpine skiing. Could choose a discipline, right? Like it's hard enough to to choose a discipline and or be successful across multiple disciplines in one sport. You know, there's there's only a handful of athletes that can that can be you know top five in the world in slalom, giant slalom, downhill, and super G and combined. Um, now you throw an entirely different sport in, um, and she's she is you know she's just a, a, an incredible athlete. And we, you and I did some did some chats about that over the games and. And uh, obviously, you were doing a lot of a lot of work and and looking at some information and data and stats and whatnot. And I was doing the same. And you know, because I was really genuinely engaged to see what would happen in this games. So I look back at her snowboard results, and you know, for a lot of people who who are listening, they probably wouldn't know she only did like two world cup events leading into the Olympics. You know, she yeah. did two two in parallel GS, I should say. So she did like two events. I think she had a first and a second and a, and that second event was like two months or three months prior to that, to the games. Um, and then she comes out and bloody wins it again. And then, you know, canter then, if you don't mind, you weren't even challenged. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then, uh, and then, you know, in, in, in Alpine, I think what, what did she, was she fourth? I think in the she fourth in the or fifth. Downhill? Yeah. In, um, in the downhill and super G. Yeah. And um, she crashed, she crashed down in one of them. Didn't she ultimately at the end? Yeah, but, that's um, right. Yeah, because she, so, she basically was just like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to do an extra event, which I didn't even think she was meant to do, and still got a yeah, top Yeah, that's 10. right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's and so she just, you know, she she after that, I don't know if you'd been following the World Cup, but she had podiums like yeah. back straight out of the freaking Olympics. She's back yep. to the World Cup and she's taking podiums in Alpine, you know, and that's her number, that's her focus now. So the fact that she can be focusing on Alpine, she can be, you know, podiuming. Um, or on the podium day in and day out, you know, every other weekend in Alpine and then go, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll throw my snowboard on as well. But I have a crack, win some World Cups, win the Olympics again. Nah, no worries. I'll see you in four years. Casual so weekend, right? Yeah. That was just, well, pretty much like what I do every four years, yeah, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, that's what Dale Beck Smith <laughs> used to do. Be like, oh, February, Olympics. Yeah, probably should do that, shouldn't I? But, I mean, it's the thing that always, like, amazed me, and you, I remember having conversations about this with you during Beijing because, again, to armchair quarterback, you know, critic person guy like me who's yeah. just like, ah, it's just you're swapping two pieces of wood for one piece of wood. It's easy, but it's not that simple to go from skiing to snowboarding, is it? No, a hundred percent. It's, it's extremely difficult. It's like, um, I don't know. What's a comparison. Uh, maybe it, maybe it's like car racing to, to motor, to motorbiking, you know, to motor GP, you know, Casey Stoner did that. He was world mm. champion motor GP. And then he went into about supercars and I think he lasted half a season and then yeah. healed out again. He just couldn't cut it. Right. So, um, you know, it's, there's the body movement is completely different you know, the, there's, there's one edge opposed to two that you're, that you're gripping on the snow. There's the courses are different. Um, you know, the only thing that's the same is that you're in the mountains and it's, you know, you're on snow. So she is a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. 
I've ticked off the uh, the the off the podium uh, bingo today. We've talked about Dalebeg Smith and Estella Decker. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> Good on you. Make sure that we've Nailed done that. It. All right, uh, John. Now we like to close out with a set of uh, sort of fun get to know you questions. As always, these are based on a questionnaire given to Team Canada athletes ahead of uh, Pyeongchang and Rio. Bit of fun. There's always, as always, there's a drawing element. If you're bored today during work and you want to send us in some drawings to share on social media, you are welcome to. Don't know how your drawing <laughs> skills are. It's not a requirement, but it's a possibility if you're bored, all right? So just we'll, we'll get to those as we move along. But I'll start off with your favorite all-time Olympic moment is. Ooh, it's probably going to be Tora Bright winning gold. Nice, which so, would have been amazing. Yeah, I imagine being the there and sort of soaking yeah. it up as a teammate of hers uh, being there in Vancouver. Yep. Um, I was there. I was there with my family and all our friends and, um, in the stands, it was one that we had to, we had to go and watch and, uh, and Tora, I actually grew up skiing with her elder sister Rowena, who was an Alpine racer and Tora and, um, and Abby and Rowie and were all in the race club at Fredbow, right? So, you know, I knew them all. We were sort of, we've been great mates and the other two brothers as well, Bernie and Rowan. And, um, Yeah. So that was amazing. That was an extremely unforgettable experience. Great. Good to hear. Uh, your As a kid, your favourite sports team was? Oh, jeez, mate. I, I, you know, I'm a ski racer. I focus on number one. <laughs> you don't need team sports to follow. Who sports cares about them? Okay. <laughs> Prior to ski racing, I, I did watch a little bit of footy and for whatever reason, I liked the Canberra Raiders. Um, I haven't watched a game of rugby league in probably 25 years, but outside, I watched a couple of origins, but for, for some reason, Canberra Raiders were my bag back when I was in the single digits. That was like Mal Meninga days back then, wasn't you it? You got so... it. And not only that, when we lived in Canberra, I was in Narrabunda and my kids went to Red Hill Primary and I look over to my left at pickup one day and there's his dude and his pluggers and his little footy shorts and little bit less trim than he used to be. Jesus, I don't know that guy. (laughs) And he's the dude, he's always on the ads, the um, Malaganis Johnson lawyers he does, these ads in Canberra because his name's Mal, right? He's got nothing to do with law. Yeah, that makes sense. um, Wow. So there you go. I saw Mal a little later in life as well. Well, I was going to say, there's speaking of politics, there's someone whose politics career didn't last very long, did it? So, I mean, you know. (laughs) You got to have a crack. You got to have a crack, exactly. You might last shorter than he did. There you go. You set your own record. Um, if you could be a superhero, who would you be? Um, uh, I would probably be Iron Man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think because he wears a very protective suit and hopefully gets injured less than I did as a <laughs> professional athlete. You'd want to hope so with that suit that he's wearing all the time. So yeah. yeah that's cool like robert downey jr tony stark right like i mean you know i mean yeah he's he's been a rock star (laughs) yeah gee that would that'd be all right um your favorite music artists are um i'm not a big music fan my mate my my good teammate craig branch we had this thing one day we're on like a 10-hour drive and and our physio simon and we had to pick we had to choose our own list of like a a mixtape and you had to fill it up with like 20 different songs. And my 20 songs, they started with bands at A and I got about halfway through B. Um, so 
So pretty I'm like, list. I'm just yeah. like, yeah, pretty quick list. I got through that pretty quickly. And they just like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> what, what about blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, mm. but wow. um, we did, we did go to, this is just a tribute festival a couple of weekends ago in Jindabyne and Queen were the Queen tribute were, were playing. And, and my daughter was like, as soon as she heard them, she's like, dad, we're going to the front, put me on your shoulders. And I had her on my shoulders for like an hour and a half, just <laughs> ripping to Queen. She was singing her little heart out. So wow. you know, Queen's on the mind. So let's, let's say uh, good old Freddie and Queen. I like that. That works well. How, so how old is, is your daughter that she's repping into Queen already? 10. Ten. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's all Man right. Frother. She made Jeez. me play it in the car all the way down the hill, uh, you know, 30 minutes. And then we got there and she was like, when's Queen playing? She was devastated. She thought we'd missed it. So, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, Queen's it for today. I- I'm glad that she's into Queen and not listening to like Taylor Swift or something like that. She's a smart girl. So mm-hmm. um, that, that, that works. Um, if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, this is a this is a tough question. We often debate this at home. Um, it's got to be. I, I would say it's probably going to be a mango or a chicken schnitzel. Oh, nice! So similar, so similar, right? Very, very closely <laughs> related foods. Often confused, I can imagine. Um, yeah, regularly in our house. Uh, yeah. Schnitzel, schnitties, because you can get them everywhere all year round, and mangoes because they're this little, little, you know, delicate morsel of happiness every you know, <laughs> few months every year <laughs> delicate morsel of happiness that that's yeah you should work for like the mango board of australia i think you found their slogan um you know those ads for bananas for a while where's the mango ads like that come on man sells it wow uh, i like that um where was your favorite place to compete uh uh, you know, at home was always fun. Actually, probably you know, competing at Threadbow, even though they weren't as they weren't as high level. Um, there was some there was some tough competitions there, but a lot of the time, my mum used to um, my mum used to volunteer as the starter in the start. Wow. Game. Yeah. So she never watched me race. Like she'd never go and stand on the side of the course, but she'd always volunteer to help. Um, and for whatever reason, she, for, for many, many, many years, she was the starter. And <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know about you, but as an athlete, occasionally I'd get a little bit nervous. And if you get a little bit nervous, you might, you might just need to do a little poof, you know, a little, little, little fluffy, you know, <laughs> just to release some of those nerves. That's how I release the nerves. Right? I, I did it just before this interview. I just, just yeah, well, let it go. go. Yeah. I just yep. did it then. Yeah, um, <laughs> hey, it's gonna happen. Better out than in. And so I'm like, shit, I'm gonna tell a story. I'm nervous. Um, <laughs> so, so every time, and it was actually generally, I don't know why. A lot of the times, it was when Mum was in the start gate, I'd get a little bit nervous because she probably because she's watching me race. And every time, she'd be like, "Don't do it. Don't don't do it." <laughs> Don't you do it? And I'm like, no, mum, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then it'd be like ten seconds. Sorry, mum. <laughs> Kick out. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So uh, anyway, Threadbow <laughs> is a is a great place to bring up some memory from racing. I was going to say they always warned you about um, not eating yellow snow. What about brown snow? Uh, is that I never, a... I never got that far, Ben. Come on, didn't man. Didn't quite get that nervous. <laughs> I'm not that bad. Oh, come I've on, Ben. My... You're too... There's a line there, right? Thoughts are okay, yeah, but that's yeah, just yeah, too yeah, far. Mate. 
Come you're on. Going, you're, you're going this is a quality deep. podcast. It's an award-winning <laughs> show, man. We don't talk about shit like that. Come on now. We're at Channel 7, you know, the epitome uh, that's of, right. of iconic media. Um, if you want to draw a picture of yourself, that's the first drawing here. But, again, that's let's see how you feel today. Um, one thing that you have always wanted to do is? I've always wanted to race either Formula One or V8 supercars. That is a good answer. I like it. Are you, do you follow both closely? Are you sort of uh, staying up late on yeah, Sunday to watch the F ones, or yeah, I don't get, I don't get, um, I don't get much time during the weekends to watch the V eight. Uh, I'm always off doing stuff with the kids. Um, I actually don't have much time to watch TV at all, to be honest. But uh, um, I do love to get into the Formula One um, as much as I possibly can. Though you know. With kids, I've got a subscription to about twenty-seven thousand different bloody streaming apps, <laughs> and I'm I'm such a tight ass that I refuse to get KO where I can watch <laughs> uh, where I can watch the Formula One whenever I want. So um, every week I cancel the subscription to Disney and Disney Plus and Netflix and Prime and whatever it else it is, so I can watch KO, and then they get turned back on three days later. I go, yeah. Yeah, done. <laughs> no, I do. I always, I always watch, try and watch the replays, and um, yeah, good. I love it. So, your you team, team Dan, is that is that all you care about, or is there other drivers or teams you follow? Look, I just love the racing. I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not like a. Um, you know. I'm not a team cheerleader by any means. I don't, you know, you wouldn't go about yourself, John. We've established it. Yeah, you. come on. I'm yes. number one. Um, <laughs> I don't have a McLaren shirt sitting in the, in the cupboard. Right. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, Ricardo, he's a legend. I would, you know, I'm actually working on another little project at the moment with a brand um, that's big in America. And, um, and I would love, I would dearly love to get, to get him on board. He's, the, he's the king. I love, I love Ricardo. That guy's, He's so freaking cool um, and funny. Like, you know, what a life, man. And he knows it and he's just love. He's just living it up. He's I've got a feeling you two would get along just based on your personalities. I think you two would just, you, would, man. you two would hit it off, I think. Well, Ricardo, Danny, if you're listening, man, hit me. Oh, Let's look, go race. We've, we've, we've tried it with a few of our guests before uh, and we'll, we'll get him eventually. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, maybe we'll we wear can, him down. Maybe Maybe the hook could be that he can race an Olympian and I on snow, and I can race a Formula One on on, on the cars. We 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 had uh, Ash Werner on a bobsledder, and we tried. We mentioned that like you could see like he would be into bobsled, so we can get him on board on some skis as well. So I just think like yeah. just have some sort of like real you know winter Olympic sort of uh, come together, and then just you all race his McLaren while he's off busy you know skiing. And <laughs> Hey, look! You it know. could be a, it could be it could be the the you know the electric go karts at the local track with McLaren hey. sticker on the side. I don't care, but let's exactly. go racing. Just put it on there. That that works yeah. a treat, I think. Um, what is your favourite thing to do in the summer? Oh, it's mountain bikes. That's hands down. Actually, it's well. That's well. I say that it's mountain bike, and we mountain bike a lot. Obviously, that's part of the reason why we started a mountain bike brand. Um, uh, but we also bought a 19, what is it? A 1984, um, what's it? Oh, that's what it's called. A 1984 California, a Caribbean Jaguar water ski boat. Wow. And we, we've, we've nicknamed it hot rod and, <laughs> and we often go out on the lake and go water skiing and tubing and all that sort of stuff. So summertime gets it. It's a mix of, a mix of, uh, riding hot rod 
Um, don't take that the wrong way there, Ben. And <laughs> riding mountain bikes. Are, are you trying to imply that I would say such <laughs> dirty things, Jono? What, what was it? Saying? How did we start this podcast off? Ah, stroking. So we've moved on from that. That was that was an hour ago. We're, we've grown up since then. Um, your favorite movie is um, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, good one. Yes. No skiing yep. in that, but still a good movie. No, good movie. Yep. Love that one. I did watch Your- No Time to Die on the plane the other day, and that was pretty good. But- well, okay. Well, I've got to ask then, because uh, Subtle Plug, one of our other shows, James Bond Podcast, 007, listen to it now. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but what did you think of the ending? Um, yes. Interesting. <laughs> Won't go into it. Didn't think that was going to happen. Nope. Um, no. No. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued because that's like – you know, that's a franchise of all franchises, right? Like, yep. so who, what's coming next? Um, Watch this space. Yeah. Maybe you could be the next James Bond and you could rectify it somehow. Well, now that would be a hell of a pivot. If I, you know, tell my wife while we lie in bed tonight, you know, what do I think I'm going to do tomorrow? <laughs> uh, babe, I've got it. I've worked it out. <laughs> I want to be the I'm next James be the Bond. Next James Bond. <laughs> Hey, I, yeah. Look, Daniel Craig. He was he, he wasn't bald, but I mean, Jason Statham. He's bald, but maybe he, maybe I could pretend I'm as cool as as that guy, and then and then like segue into being Bond. Exactly. And well, I, I mean, know, all- and I, I know Robbie Madison. Sorry to cut you off. I'm I'm mates with Robbie Madison from our Red Bull days, and he was doing the stunts for No Time to Die. So, man, I'm wow. I'm, I'm I'm basically there. I've, you, you really are like you. Me. You are one step away from James Bond, literally. Then, so it's a, I think it's amazing perfectly. what you can tell yourself. Yeah, and like with uh, you know, like back when Craig was announced, it was like you know, oh no, we can't. He can't be Bond because he's he's blonde. blonde. I'm sure people people can accept a bald Bond if they can accept a blonde Bond. So well. Yeah, I mean, I'll just take the bond any which way I can get it. <laughs> and come on, your wife's not, like, what What wife on this planet would be like, oh, no, I don't want to go to bed every night with Jane's bond. Like, I mean, oh, God, no. Like, geez, well, what a terrible she, life that would be. She's a realist. She just knows that she'd be going to bed with someone else then. <laughs> <laughs> and the only time you would let that happen. So um, just saying, it's win-win for everyone. Uh, if, if you're listening, Barbara and Michael, you've got your James Bond right here. Um, now, this question is your favourite place to visit in Canada, but let's switch it up to your favourite place to visit in Australia is. Wowee. Um, actually, I, I, I don't get to do enough travelling around Australia. I would, you know, like I can't say the mountains because I live in the mountains. Um, I, I, I quite enjoy just going camping in the high country. So we went down to Korong not long ago down, we went down to this man from Snowy river festival. We went camping on the river down there. That was awesome. That, you know, beautiful anywhere, anywhere outdoors. And, you know, I don't love the cities. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, put me in the mountains, put me out in the dirt. Happy days. Happy days. There you go. Uh, your favourite cartoon to watch growing up was? Was it He-Man? Could have He-Man, been He-Man, hey. Yeah, it depends what, <laughs> depends what age we are. Well, uh, what we're, He-Man's what we're a good one. About. I think that wins yeah. already. <clears throat> I'll take He-Man. Let's go, with, let's go with He-Man and Sheila. She's a hottie. Yeah. Well, needs to be brought up more, He-Man. Why not? It doesn't get mentioned as much as it does. Now, I don't know if it holds up very well, but who cares? That was a, it was an yeah, innocent exactly. time. Um, if you had to do karaoke, I know you love your music, clearly, but if you had to do karaoke, what would you sing to? 
It's got to be Queen, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be well, Rhapsody? Yeah. <laughs> your daughter's going to let you right. get away with that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My wife did a lot of stints in Japan. She ran a lodge there for a number of years um, and then she studied there as well. And so we've been a couple of times and anytime we find a karaoke bar, we uh, we, we we drop in and let it rip. So, Perfect. you know, Queen would obviously get it run. Is there video footage of this, Jono? Is there something you can share um, with us? There's video footage that won't be given to you, Ben, yes. Damn, I, I like how you trust me. I thought we were bonding in this interview. <laughs> Guess I'm going to work on my interview skills. Uh, last question for you: If you could be an Olympian in any other sport besides your own, what would it be? What would it be? Does this would it would it be like an Olympic champion in in a sport, or just an Olympian in general? It just says an Olympian in general, but, I mean, if we want to shoot for the stars, you can say an Olympic champion. Look, Olympian in general, hmm. It's got to be winter sports. Um, I, I, you know what would be really exciting? I think ski jumping would be really exciting. And we've never had a ski uh-huh. jumper, Jono. This is the only winter sport Australia's never had a winter Olympian. So there you go, history-making. Yeah. You almost had um, a biathlete um, in ben, my mate Ben Sim, who mm-hmm. sh- shameless plug to Simbo. He was a cross country, great cross country skier, but he held the he held the VO2 max record at the AIS for about twelve years. So VO2 yep. max is how much oxygen you put in your lungs, right? And they tried so hard to poach him to go to cycling. And he refused. He wanted to stay. And that's actually Sammy Kennedy Sims' husband, um, our ski cross athlete, who's just recently retired. But um, he was going off to do biathlon and he did some training, ski jumping, um, which would have been super cool to watch. But, um, yeah. Anyway, it's got to happen one day. Like this is, this is, we had a lot of ski jumpers on this show and I'm constantly talking. I'm trying to get them to come to Australia, you know, to to start this program up because we've had a Nordic combined, the great Hal Nadal back in, in the sixties, he was a, you know, only Nordic combined athlete. So halfway there. So like, we just, we just need to get somebody to ski jump. That's what Simbo was doing. Yeah. Simbo was going for Nordic combined. Now I reckon if you get Roy and HG to reignite the, reignite the plan for Smigs. 2038 or whatever it was, you know, and everybody, you know, stop recycling and start dumping all your rubbish (laughs) on top of Smigs. We could potentially build a ski jump. Mount, there you go. You've, we're, we're, we're changing the well, course of history. As I, right as, I keep, as I keep trying to point out to everybody, we're 10 years away from the Brisbane Olympics. Now, they are in winter. They are winter Olympics for Australia. So you could have a ski jump. Like, just think about it right there. It's, the IOC would be down for it, I'm sure. Have a winter Olympics in Australia. You can have a ski jump next to the swimming. Why not? It will work. They've built the Jeff Henke Centre in Brisbane already yep. up on the Goldie, and that is a ski jump, not for traditional ski flying or ski jumping, but why not just add another ramp on next door and they could land in the ocean? And you could be the trailblazer, Jono, like James Bond and ski. Like he did ski jump in For Your Eyes Only. So technically you're like, come on, it's just, it's all fitting together. Your wife will be fine with it. She'll be all good. Yeah, yeah no, I can see the link. It's just seamless. Yeah. And those, those, those knees it. and injuries. I mean, she'll ski. No, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you have a landing. double for that. Don't <laughs> exactly. worry about it. <laughs> it works a treat that way. Uh, Jono, before I let you go, you've plugged, you plugged the business. Plug it again. Anything else with your socials that people oh, can sort of yeah. stay up to date with what you're, what you're up to? Yeah, mate. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm like, um, 
Um, I'm socially adverse personally. Uh, don't have time to put anything on socials, but for my business, it's hashtag sendygear, um, www.sendygear.com. So that's basically where you're going to find, you know, awesome mountain biking apparel and protection for kids and adults at um, significantly reduced prices. So it's just you take a handful handful of hands out of the pie and you can deliver great quality at a really good price. So, um, Or jump on our website and find your local stockist. So that's um, that's the bag right there, buddy. That's simple. Jono, mate, it's been so fun being able to relive everything from your your career and everything else since and and do this chat today and and distract you from work for a good hour. I'm sure it's a good start for your day too, but uh, appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you in in Bond 26, maybe some mangoes. (laughs) Bring some mangoes back to the James Bond franchise. The delicate morsels of happiness. Maybe that could be the no time to die with morsels of happiness. Or maybe that's that's the Bond girl right there. I think her name is (laughs) Delicate Morsels of Happiness. That sounds like a Bond girl right there. Come on now. Who's playing that? Maybe your wife playing the Bond girl. (laughs) Exactly. Mate, she's hot enough, let me tell you. So, um, very good. Hey, Ben, thank you very much. And uh, shameless plug for Ben Waterworth, Waterworth, if anyone's in America and needs a fantastic (laughs) journal slash podcast slash legend, um, he's currently over there dominating the streets of, uh, of Manhattan. So, hook him up. I appreciate that, Jono, and your uh, check will be in the mail for giving that sound. Thank you. (laughs) And a massive thanks to Jono there. A lot of fun learning about their everything to do with Alpine skiing. The injuries, just insane. Not knowing how many surgeries you've had, that is absolutely crazy. And just that desire to be able to compete in the Olympics in Vancouver when basically you've uh, pretty much screwed your leg over less than a year beforehand. Just uh, inspirational stuff there from Jono. And I'm looking forward to seeing him as the next James Bond. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Great chat we've got for you next week. Very, very excited for this one. We've got a returning guest, the one, the only, Ali Ludit. Now, of course, if you remember about Ali, she uh, was on the show back in January, our very first ski jumper that we had on the show. And probably my favorite story from the Beijing Olympics was her being part of Canada's mixed team ski jumping team that won the bronze medal, their very first Olympic winter medal in the sport of ski jumping, Canada's first ever medal in that. And we will also be joined not only by Ali, but one of her teammates from that event, Matthew Sukup, who, uh, of course, uh, as I said, was a member of that team. So it's a great chat with both Ali and Matt. Colin will be on that with me too next week. So uh, tune in for that one. You're going to have a lot of fun, a lot of fun. We've got some fun interviews coming away. We've had a great one today and we'll have another one next week. So be sure to tune into that. And if you want to not miss that episode and stay up to date with everything that's got coming on and off the podium, you can subscribe, of course, to us on all good podcast platforms. Search for Off the Podium, hit the subscribe button. While you're there, why not leave us some feedback? We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And, of course, we're on social media as well. You can stay up to date with everything to do with the show, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and of course if you're on YouTube you can watch this episode with Jono the video version on there as well and uh, yeah that's basically how you stay up to date with your award winning podcast off the podium I had to fit it in I always fit it in so there it is Uh, big thanks again to Jono big thanks again to you for listening for this show shout out as always to Jason Momoa until we next speak again my name is Ben this is off the podium and remember go left go left